Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. I'm your host, Jen Taylor. A huge shout out and thank you to NGBN TV for sponsoring this video podcast episode. Today we hear from Jennifer Ann Gordon. After ending an emotionally and physically abusive relationship, suffering from depression and having a complete lack of confidence, she took a ballroom dance class and ended up becoming a professional ballroom dancer, a choreographer who also does burlesque and is now a published author helping others through grief and trauma. Welcome to Naked Podcaster. Today I am on with Jennifer Ann Gordon. Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm awesome. Where are you? You're naked. I, which means I'm awesome because yes. Awesome. I mean, we had a short pregame conversation about nakedness and mm-hmm. we'll go into that a little bit because, you know, you aren't opposed to it. No, that's a, that's a <laughs> I'm teaser. very comfortable with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, two two Jennifers that are comfortable being naked. This is like, yes, it is I your know. fantasy. Your fantasy brought to you. I'm on a your blonde s- Jennifer and a redheaded Jennifer. I know, oh, I know, really. Like we couldn't, if we added a third, you know, it mm-hmm. would just be the ultimate trifecta of, <laughs> of fantasy. So I'm on your website, Jennifer Ann Gordon, and I want to really dive in. You have a lot of I mean, it's really exceptional, your website and what you do. So thank you. you jump in and tell us about you. Well, I know my website has a lot on it. So when people go, sometimes they're just like, whoa, she does everything. Uh, I don't do everything. Uh, it just seems like I do everything. So I'm primarily an author these days. So my website has my books on it, uh, but it also has my artwork that I did for years, my collage artwork that I used to make my living selling that for a long time. And I also dabble in photography, but that is just a a hobby that I love a lot, uh, especially photographing abandoned buildings and uh, architecture and things like that. So I've traveled kind of all over to take photos. Uh, of buildings I like. So there's that. I think there is, what else is on there? Yeah, just photography. I I also do mixed media collaborative paintings with my husband, but I don't think oh. any of those are on that website. Those are on our, we have a, a different website that is for our dance and for our artwork that we, we co-paint together. So we both paint at the same time on the same canvas. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. Okay. And then, no, I don't have that um, website. So I might, yeah, we I'm, might I'm, add that in just because we can. Okay. You have a collage page yes. on the website. So that, yeah. That is the work that I used to sell uh, online as my job before I switched over to dancing full-time. And uh, I sold primarily on Etsy for a very long time. And I had a couple calendars made of my work. I have a coffee table book. Uh, I sold work to restaurants and stores and celebrities. And it was, it was a really good way to make my living while I was kind of in a, a more secluded time in my life. But we'll probably get to that later. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Urbex, which is the bit, the, the, Building. Yeah, that's the urban exploring. Yeah. So that's what urbex stands for. Usually it's uh, finding kind of abandoned places or the beauty of decay in buildings or just anything I've photographed inside of old uh, abandoned sewer pipes 
I've photographed abandoned hospitals and poor houses and prisons and abandoned houses, pretty much anything. Have you ever been to um, Jerome, Arizona? I have not. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that's got to be on your bucket list. Okay. So then you have uh, portraits. Yes. And those are primarily of my husband or myself or my pets. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really fun. But you, the way you, the, the lens in which you view things is very unique and beautiful, very different. Thank and uh, the filtering and the light that you use, it's really pretty incredible. Thank you. Thank the, you. Then you have the unnatural. Yeah. So that is anything from like a still life to uh, statues, dolls, uh, things that are, or, or hyper-realized nature too. Sometimes I'll, I'll take nature photography and kind of edit it a little bit so it's a little bit different than we yeah. actually see it with our eyes. So, and then paintings. So how is this, I mean, I see that it's different in maybe, style, but not, it's still oh, okay. collage. Then that, all right, so then- the, That the is your section. Yes, that's both of us. Oh. So that is on there. You can tell how long it's been since I've updated my own website. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, you know, when you create oh a God. website, it doesn't mean like you have any, I, I mean, I pretty much know what's on there, but yeah, you kind of, you, some things you set it and you forget it unless you're adding to it. Yeah, so exactly. To That's why I'm like, oh yeah, the paintings are on there. Yeah, yeah. And then you have, you have art model. Yes. Yeah, so uh, for a long time, uh, I am a professional dancer or I was a professional dancer before COVID. So I've done everything from ballroom dancing to theatrical dancing to burlesque. And uh, my husband and I, a lot of times we get hired by photographers just to like go be weird places and just, <laughs> you know, dress in crazy costumes and uh, have people take pictures of us. I mean, I kind of be really okay with that myself. Yeah, I know. I love it because it's almost like doing a play or being yeah. in a movie. Uh, especially, you know, if you get a really good photographer that just like lets you go and be uh, your natural kind of weirdo self, which is yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> which we will also get into. You were originally <laughs> born in New Hampshire. I was born in uh, Rhode Island. So we're both from New England. Neither one of us really has an accent though. No, I know. I wouldn't have guessed Rhode Island for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rhode Island. So, hardcore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I... <laughs> Hard, hardcore Rhode Island. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I was born in New Hampshire. I spent about 10 or 12 years in the Midwest, uh, and now I'm back in New Hampshire. Oh, and okay. I probably don't have an accent because I went to school for theater. Oh, so it was probably that's just like It was probably just like beaten out of me. That's interesting. I lost it because I didn't want people to, it didn't sound like all the TV people, right? They all sound right. Midwest. They don't have an accent. They don't sound Southern. They don't sound New England. Yeah. And I didn't want to sound that way. So I, I changed it, but there's still some words, man. You just, and it'll happen. Yeah. It happens. It happens to me if I get really tired, uh, um, all of a sudden, like my voice gets a little bit different or certain words. I can't remember them right now. If I have like a couple glasses of wine, yep. then yeah, exactly. I get a little like it's like I get a little Boston yeah. sneaking in and I'm like, uh oh, if I hear someone from New England who has an accent, I'm like, OK, I, you got to it's hard for me to not yeah. uh, or if I get super excited or ang angry or drink. Yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. How fun. We need to drink together sometime. 
Exactly. Drink naked and you just exactly. let our accents come out. Um, I know. Some, what's funny is New England has such a specific accent to the people who have grown up here. We know it. Yeah. Um, everybody thinks it's just a Boston accent, but it's not. No. It's, it's so weird. Um, but sometimes I'll talk. And again, if I've had like a couple drinks and I'm meeting people and I'm socializing and I'm excited and people naturally just assume I'm from New Jersey. But they say it in a way that's like not a compliment. (laughs) Well, it's not, right? I mean, we know from growing up there, it's not necessarily. I know they're like, are you from Jersey? Like, Uh, but with like a grimace, like, are you from Jersey? And I'm like, what? They they watch the show. I know that's an insult. Jersey Shore. They watch that. That's what (laughs) we all are that now. Now, you also have a podcast. I want to talk about that. Yes. Um, so my podcast, I'm very lucky. Uh, it started back in July. It is called Vox Vomitus, which wow. is fake Latin for word vomit. And uh, I host the show with my two book besties, uh, my two sister wives in books, Trisha Ridinger McKee and Allison Martine. They're both authors. We all published our first book right around the same time and kind of have been supporting each other emotionally through that. Uh, so we developed a podcast with the Global Authors on the Air Network, where we talk to best-selling authors, not about what went right, but what went really wrong in the writing process. So we, we drink some drinks and we talk to people and get them to t- tell us all about their mistakes. <laughs> it's really funny. It's really funny. And it's Because we talk about like, yeah, it's lighthearted. And I mean... You do a lot of interviews. I do a lot of interviews. I get interviewed a lot. It's always fun to have a, an interviewer who's not just giving you like the standard questions. The like, what inspired your book? Tell me about this. I'm like, oh gosh, I don't want to tell anybody that anymore. Uh, so I think yeah. it's good. Uh, the writers that have been on our show have had a real, really good time. And they always say things like, I haven't thought about that in years, or I can't believe you got me to admit that I used to write blah, blah, blah secretly. <laughs> right. I love that. That's so fun. Well, we're many facets, right? So I'm actually going to jump. That's a great segue because on your, I think it's on your bio, you talk about how you, you're the art model, which we talked about. You do the paintings, actress, magician's assistant, artist, writer, dancer, muse. That's all the things. It's all the things. It's all of them. <laughs> this is what happens when you go to school for theater and you don't have any kind of uh, skill set that's like real job worthy. Like I don't know how to do a spreadsheet. Uh, I couldn't work in a bank. <laughs> like, I, mean, I don't even understand what real jobs are. I'm like, oh, I couldn't do a, a an office thing where I was in a cubicle probably. So uh you know, when you just use the skill set you have, and my skill set is pretty much creativity and fake it till you make it. And so just take a swan dive and try your hardest to uh, succeed in the arts. And I have done that. I'm a grown up now and I haven't had any like real, real jobs. Uh, I've always worked in the arts. That's really phenomenal, actually, because that's really difficult. So it is really, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm exhausted, Jen. <laughs> yes, I, know. I hear you. I feel it. Now, the last thing on your website, I'm so excited about this, are your books. 
Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I am a horror novelist, mainly gothic horror. Um, two of my books take place in the Victorian era. My debut novel was called Beautiful, Frightening and Silent, and that is a contemporary gothic novel. And that just won the Kindle Award for the best horror novel of 2020. Oh, and yay! Congratulations! Yeah, so that's, that's exciting. And I just won the uh, Authors on the Air best horror novel of 2020, too. Oh. So... It's I'm like so the little proud. book. It's the, you know, I wrote this book thinking nobody is going to want to read this very strange, bizarre, incredibly heartbreaking story about a man and his grieving process and a ghost who is a victim of abuse. I thought no one's going to want to read this, but I want to write it. And the fact that it has sort of people have read it and they've appreciated it and loved it. And, you know, it's, it's nice to win an award. <laughs> I, that's so great. I didn't know that. I love being surprised by that. I'm yeah, looking... it just happened. The Kindle Award just happened um, November 1st. It happened the day after I got married. So I had a really bad 2020, but then a really great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I got married, I won an award. 2020 just saved itself. <laughs> So I, um, you know, I stalk all my guests. Good. Like I stalk, I hardcore stalk. I follow everybody everywhere. I, it's more that I want to support the people that I talk to. So I bought and downloaded to my Kindle, Daylight to Madness and When the Sleeping Dead Talk. I have not read yes. them yet, but I purchased okay. them. And I was looking to see if I did your first one, but I don't think I did. No, it doesn't look like I did. So yay, I can't wait to read those. I, oh my gosh, that makes me so happy that when, when people do actually try to connect with their guests and read the books and like know who they are. So thank you. I love You're that. You're welcome. Yeah, I um, do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. I have to. That's how I feel. Like I read a lot because I interview a lot of authors. So uh, I like to know who I'm talking to. And I do the same thing you do. I go to their website. I stalk them. I find them on Twitter. <laughs> just like I'm reading everything well I if, want all of your social media connections so I can put them in the show notes so everybody will know where to find you right if they're yes. interested they want more information they can find you and connect buy your books although I like to, to send the links to your Amazon page also but um I can't always get them read before our interview but I always support because yeah. once you're an author you know how much that support means and I review every one of them what <gasps> what what you'll actually get a what? review i know gosh and that is like the holy grail right there. that's gold just like waiting for the reviews well it's it's subscribing to a podcast you don't have to ever listen to it again but actually subscribing to it means a lot and do leaving a review massive for podcasts and massive for books that's and people don't understand it's not like liking a post it's like yeah, it is the holy grail of books and podcasts to yeah. actually subscribe and to leave reviews on things. And yeah, it, it makes a massive difference. So yeah, I, yeah. I did that. I'll let everybody know. Thank you. Thank Yay. You. <laughs> I want to go back in time now. Oh, okay. We, we said New okay. Hampshire. You were born in New Hampshire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I love New Hampshire. I really do. But you grew up in New England as yeah. well so you understand there's like this um new englanders tend to be incredibly internal 
and, and holds things inside. So when there is something that's going wrong in your life, in your family life, in your childhood, nobody talks about it. And I especially didn't talk about it when I was a kid in the eighties. And I grew up going to a Catholic school and a very private little school. Uh, so I was incredibly sheltered for the first many years of my life, I would say, probably until I was about age 10. Um, my father was amazing. He is not with us anymore, but he was an amazing man, uh, much older than my mother. So he passed away when my mom was real young still. But uh, my mom is also awesome. She is a, a survivor of really intense childhood trauma. So she was sort of still dealing with those ramifications of her childhood trauma when I was a child. So uh, she wasn't always the easiest person to get along with and she still isn't, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, she's a, a huge survivor. So that's kind of my, my gist of who I was as a kid. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was still in Catholic school and I started being a little bit um, questioning of my faith. I started wanting to dress kind of like Madonna and none of these things uh, really fit in a Catholic school kind of environment. So I asked my parents if I could switch to public school and my dad was thrilled because he was like, yes, I won't have to pay for this anymore because we didn't have any money, but they were pretty much giving all their money to send me to a private school. So, um, so that was like my big move. In sixth grade, I was transferred to a much larger public school. And that was the first time I realized in my life how mean people can be. Uh, because, uh, again, I went from like a classroom of 20 kids and everybody knew each other since kindergarten to now being like the new girl in a school, being a poor girl in a very rich town. That was another thing I didn't quite realize we were poor until all of a sudden I was going to school with really rich kids. And everything about me was fodder for people to make fun of me and bully me. So uh, sixth grade sucked, seventh grade sucked even worse than that. Uh, I had this kind of pack of mean girls that just had it in their head to make my life absolutely miserable. So I never liked eating in the cafeteria. I hated the way I looked. I was suffering from incredible like depression at the age of 12, which is too young for anybody to be depressed. And I stopped doing pretty much all schoolwork. I just couldn't cope with anything. So I had a English teacher and she kind of saw that I was falling way behind in school. And she said, I had writ written a couple poems or something for an assignment. And she said, if you write, you, I'll give you extra credit and I'll help, it'll help dig you out of this hole. And I said, okay. Um, and then after a couple of weeks, I, it got to be so I was, instead of eating in the cafeteria and getting, you know, apples thrown at me and getting picked on, I was eating in my English teacher's classroom while she would grade papers. And I would just sit there and write and write and write and write and write. So, you know, it, it's not an original story everybody's been picked on so but it, it sort of destroyed my self-esteem as a child so then later on when I got to high school and then even in my 20s I had a terrible self-esteem tried everything I could to not have bad self-esteem the theater the you know being somebody else 
uh, pretending I was a different person because that's why I loved theater so much because I didn't have to be me. I didn't have to be Jennifer Ann Gordon. I could be anybody. Uh, but one thing led to another. And in my 20s, I ended up moving to the Midwest with, uh, I was in a relationship with somebody. And for a long time, I was there in this relationship that I was petrified to be in. I was walking on eggshells all the time. You know, as time went by, I realized it was emotional abuse and then eventually physical abuse. And so that was my, you know, my 20s was in this relationship. And this is when I was doing my artwork, my collage artwork that I was selling on Etsy. Um, because I was too afraid to leave the house. I just, I couldn't get a job. I just, I could barely walk down the driveway. I was petrified of everything all the time. And my ex was incredibly controlling. So it was just easier for me to literally stay inside and just live in this one little room basically with my artwork. Uh, by then I had stopped writing. I didn't really believe in myself, but the artwork, it was almost like being on stage because I was creating a character for every collage I made. And if you look at the collages, um, I have a coffee table book of them called Victoriana. If you read the titles of each piece, they're, it's, it's so autobiographical, just the titles, um, that I think that was my way of kind of screaming out into the universe and hoping that I could be seen. I want to go back to your childhood a little bit. You, because your parents were using all of their money possible for your education and you asked to be taken out and they agreed, it wasn't like at that point you probably would have been comfortable going, nope, big mistake, put me back in private school. You never considered that? That wasn't... I, you know, I did consider it, but when, so my mother was Catholic and my father was not, my father was an atheist. So sending me to Catholic school was something that they were doing for my education, but he never loved the idea that it was a Catholic school. So, you know, they made me think long and hard when I begged and begged and begged to get taken out. And he said, he was just like, if you make this decision, you can't change your mind and ask to go back. Mm. So I did ask to go back and he said, well, you know, he was very old school in New England, uh, 20 years older than my mom, just like, nope, this was the deal you said. And I was like, ah, and like, he was so New England, I couldn't even like fight with that. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyone from New England understands that. But also, I mean, I know financially it was, they were less stressed because I was below poverty level in New England growing up too. So I get that. Yeah. And predominantly Catholic, predominantly. So I'm guessing uh, an old school Catholic when we were in school, like ruler on the knuckles type thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. really hardcore. Um, and I bet also because he was not Catholic, there was probably some relief in the fact that at least you were removed from that environment. Yes. Yeah, Perhaps. exactly. I think he was kind of thrilled <laughs> that, yeah. on every level. But, uh, but, but I didn't have the courage to talk to my parents and say, I'm getting bullied by girls at school. Like they didn't know. I just right. internalized it because I thought for some reason it was my fault. And I was, I, I felt bad because part of the reason they were bullying me was because I was poor. 
And it, yeah. how would you say that to your parents? Like, I'm getting bullied because you are a mechanic dad and mom doesn't work. And, you know, like as a child, how do you say that? You don't want to, <laughs> you can't. And as an adult, you understand that that sacrifice for your mom to stay home with you meant that you were such a priority and, yeah. and it was a sacrifice. They were sacrificing to put you to school, to have your mom stay home. Like, so you can't really fault them either for no, like, no, no for any of it. No, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I'm not one of those. I know a lot of people like to blame everything on their bad childhoods. And I, I don't like the word blame. I like to say, you know, it's just who I was. It's what I went through. Um, I don't, I'm not angry at anybody for it happening. And sometimes I'm a little bit angry at those mean girls still. Yeah. And sometimes I'm angry at myself, but I'm never angry at, you know, my parents about right. it or even, even the teachers who saw what was going on and most of them didn't care. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no excuse for the fact that it was a, a long time ago in a different kind of generation in New England and both those things. I know people from the South, it's, they, we have very specific, I guess, ways of doing things in different parts of the U.S. And, and New England is very specific in how they did things. Yeah. That's different than other places in the country and the world. So yeah, part of it's the time, you know, like I, I was a kid in the 70s, you're a kid in the 80s, whatever. And yeah. part of it is just the way things were in your geographic location too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, you, you know, what my, our parents went through. So my father was, you know, older than my mom and my mom was older than most of the other moms because it took them a very long time to have me. I was an only child. So there was all of this, like, my parents were of a different world inside this different world. They were even more old fashioned than everybody else. And everybody else was still old fashioned. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, my really mom, you know, it's just, and like you said, like predominantly Catholic, predominantly French Canadian, a lot of the parents of my friends or uh, classmates, their parents barely spoke English. Yeah. Yeah. That's and very common. And it was so, and when I would, so my husband, the person I just married, he's from Russia. And when we met 10 years ago, I would talk about my childhood and he would say, that sounds like so much about like going, growing up in Russia. Like, how is it like we had almost like similar upbringings with like the parents who don't speak English and a lot of like religion overtones and hold everything in and don't talk about your problems. So I realized New England is a little bit like Russia emotionally <laughs> very interesting that's fascinating yeah. and you recognize now that your mom i mean i think as adults when we kind of grow up a lot of us figure out that our parents were creating their own story of their lives based on their past and often traumas while trying to parent us because we become parents or adults who are trying to work through our own path. We become that, right? Yeah. We're yeah. all, we're all adults who have something traumatic in the background and we're trying to process that while doing all of the other things, adulting or parenting or whatever. And so when, when did you realize how old were you or young were you when you realized your mom was really struggling through her own trauma while trying to parent you? 
Um, I first realized there was something wrong, I would say. Something was amiss because I, I remember going on a family vacation, which was just going on day trips to like Hampton Beach. And, uh, you know, we didn't ever go away anywhere. But my dad would take a vacation and for like a week or two weeks. And I remember him saying to me, you have to make sure you're really good because there's something going on with your mom and she needs to not be upset this entire few weeks. We have to get her back on track. So whatever you do, be good, be quiet, be, you know, the perfect child. So that's when I first realized, oh, there's something going on here that I don't quite understand. Uh, by the time I was 14, she had had a, a really big nervous breakdown. And uh, when I was 15, she finally told me a little bit about what had happened to her when she was a child. And it was truly, honestly, the most horrifying story I've ever heard in my life. And it was very brave of her to tell me because she hadn't even told my dad at that point. Uh, he just, he wow. just didn't even know what was going on with her. She eventually did end up telling him but not for many years. And I think it was when he was actually sick and dying and she, she kind of like got everything off of her chest of like, this is what's been wrong in our marriage this whole time. It's because of blah. Wow. But by then it was like too late. He was actively dying and they hadn't slept in the same bed in years. It was that kind of, but nobody talked about it. I was like a teenager living in this house when my parents didn't sleep in the same bed and Every once in a while, I would have a friend over and they'd be like, what's going on here? Like, why are they not even in the same room with each other? Why don't they talk to each other? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> well, it was your normal nobody too. Would, yeah. I'm like, and nobody would talk. Like, nobody would talk about it. Which is why I think now as an adult, I'm so overly verbose. <laughs> I talk about everything. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay, so then you get into this relationship with a guy yep. and you follow him to the Midwest. Did your parents know him? How did they feel about that? When were the first so, signs that something was wrong? Um, so the, the irony is uh, that the person I ended up moving to the Midwest with when I was in my twenties was a boyfriend I had in high school when I was like 16, he was older than me. So see, there's a pattern here. Yeah. He was older than me. And even then, like now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, that was a gross age difference. Like my parents did not approve then. And I thought like, oh, I'm young and I'm in love and you can't tell me who to love. And they were like, there's something not right about a man his age dating a girl your age. And uh, I didn't want to hear it. But anyways, it didn't matter. The guy ended up breaking my heart. And then many years later, we kind of got back in touch and I was right back to being that 16 year old girl again. Like, mm -hmm. oh, like, it, you know, it, it was like no time had passed, but in a bad way. So I don't think, I don't think the adult me ever had a relationship with him. I think he always expected me to still be that 16 year old girl who was petrified of her own shadow. And when I didn't end up being that person, he found a way to turn me back into her. What was the age difference? Um, I mean, it was only seven years, but okay. still when you're 16 and I was a very naive 16. Right. 
I just think it's interesting. Your parents didn't like it because they're 20 year age difference. And that's why I was curious. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so, interesting. And that was one. Yeah. And that was one of the things I was like, how can you judge? Like you yeah. guys have a really big age difference. But again, they were like, it's different with us. It was a different time. <laughs> Not wrong. She I mean, was I, an adult. Yeah. Well, there's that. There's that. But that she was exactly. She was a grown up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you get back into him, uh, involved with him. He thinks you're the same person. Did you, I, I imagine hindsight, did, when did you first recognize that things were not right? I mean, really legitimately recognize it. I mean, I hate to say this, but almost right away. I had been in the yeah. Midwest less than four months. And there was a night that he was just so upset about, I can't even remember what. And I was having a full-blown panic attack because he was throwing things and punching walls. And, and I just remember thinking, I just have to be as quiet as I can be. If I'm just as quiet as I can be, flashing back to high, uh, childhood stuff, like, mm -hmm. it'll be good. It'll be fine. He just needs to rest. He just needs to relax. Uh, but again, I was so, like, I knew I could have just gone back to New Hampshire, but I felt like every single person that told me you're making the biggest mistake of your life by going there to be with him and me saying, fuck you. Of course I'm not. You can't, you know, <laughs> I know, I know what I'm doing. I just like, couldn't even like think of going back home and telling everybody that they were right. Yeah. So I sort of stuck it out for like, um, pride. But again, and then he had a young daughter and I was very close with her. She was uh, severely special needs and very sick. So, you know, I was her stepmother and, you know, you just, you get trapped. Yeah. Well, and you make a commitment and you don't want to, you know, negate that commitment that you made. Having kids involved makes it so much more difficult, so much more difficult. So he yeah. was jealous, moody. Uh, you wrote that he was a chronic liar and emotionally abusive. So that stuff's happening. Was he doing the narcissistic love bombing? And yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say he was a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where when you do stick up for yourself or find a voice in any way, they're going to make it all okay. It's going to all be okay again. Yeah. Right. When did the physical abuse happen? And it's amazing. It's really insidious. It's not like flipping the light on and, and I hate when people are like, why didn't you just get it and leave? Well, because it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And it happens, like you said, it's so slow. Because first it starts with him just you know, screaming and towering over you while you like kind of hide in a corner, but he's not punching you. And then the next time he is slamming his hand into the wall right next to you. But again, he's not hitting you. And maybe you deserved it because you knew what you did was going to make him mad. Uh, so it was a, a slippery slope to, and it wasn't all the time, but it was often enough. And then we just decided, or I decided that we couldn't be together anymore. We were getting a divorce. He ended up, uh, he owed me a lot of money. And one night he said, you know, come over, we'll talk about, you know, how I'm going to pay you back, blah, da, 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 all this stupid stuff. I fell for it. And he trapped me in that house, locked the door, smashed my phone to pieces. <laughs> and I thought he's going to murder me. Like he is actually going to murder me. And my little doggy I had at the time 
I think if it wasn't for that dog, he, he would have murdered me that night. <laughs> and, you know, it was a, a hell raising night. It was awful. I escaped. And that was the first time I went to the police. And then I've had a restraining order ever since. But wow. I also had to move a thousand miles, but. <laughs> Which is a small sacrifice sometimes when you're it thinking is. about the bigger picture. Holy cow. So you were doing the Etsy shop at that point and yes. staying small and afraid and quiet, but still yeah. artistic. Yes. And so this is also right around when dance came back into my life. Uh, there was a, a little strip mall about a block from my house that had a little post office where I would go and mail out my Etsy stuff. Um, and in between my house and that little post office, there was a Fred Astaire ballroom dance studio. And I would have to, you know, I would take all my energy and all my courage to like just walk to the post office. But I would pass by this dance studio every day and I would peek in and I just saw how happy people looked. And, uh, and they were dancing during the day. And I thought, gosh, that's so fucking magical. Like, the girls in the high-heeled shoes and and I, I had never ballroom danced before in my life and I thought I really want to take a lesson and it took over a year for me to build up the courage to take a lesson and the first day I went uh, I think I lost five pounds that week I was petrified but I walked in that studio and that's when I met the person I am married to now uh, he literally jumped over a table scooped me up in his arms and gave me a hug and he went is your name jennifer and i literally like pushed him away from me and stuck my hand out like a handshake dorky handshake and i was like yes i'm jennifer i don't hug i'm from new england and <laughs> <laughs> that's actually really true <laughs> i know um and then i i started dancing i was just a dance student at first uh for about six or seven months and then the studio hired me and and this was you know, towards the, the end of the, the very end of the relationship, because obviously the ex did not want me dancing. Right. Um, at all. He didn't want me leaving the house to work. He didn't want any of it. But that was me taking my life back. That was like the first major step was me walking in that dance studio and remembering who I was. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Well, you'd spent however many years trying to not be seen yes how terrifying was it to put yourself out there to do the exact opposite yeah um it was really scary at first but then i remembered how much i loved it i remembered why i went to school for theater i remembered why i danced when i was a kid and it, it really was like a veil being like lifted off of me and me stepping out into like a new life, the life I was supposed to have. Yeah. So you meet your current husband the moment you walk into the dance studio. Yes. And we did not get together for many years after that, but, uh, yeah. but we were I best mean, friends and okay, dance how partners. incredible, how incredible. Okay, so you're yeah. going to dancing. Now, somewhere in here, you started the photography. I mean, you really started, you, you ended your Etsy shop and started other stuff at what point was that shift and and when did the um when did the books when did you start writing 
Um, so the Etsy shop ended probably in about 2012. Um, I had a couple years that were like blurry where I was doing a little Etsy and dancing. Uh, but then I realized I couldn't do both of them well. Mm. And, and by that time with Etsy, um, it, it was still fun. But because people had come to know a certain style of my work, that's all they wanted. That was all that would sell. And I wanted to kind of start doing different kinds of artwork and I would try and nobody would buy it. And it was just like, Ugh, I'm doing this for me. I want to create something. And the, the Etsy shop ended up feeling like I was just a one woman factory because most of the time I was just shipping art prints because I'd sell like 20 art prints a day. And most wow. of my time wasn't making artwork. It was literally filling out address labels and packaging things. And I thought I can continue doing this and I was making very good money or I can make way less money as a ballroom dance instructor, but I'll be out in the world again. So I chose, I chose less money and being in the world. Wow. And How great is that? So it was, it was good. Um, and then I, I'd been writing kind of off and on, but I didn't start writing, writing. I didn't write beautiful, frightening and silent until um, like a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, yeah. so you did three of your books really quickly. Yes, um, I did. And actually, uh, From Daylight to Madness and When the Sleeping Dead Still Talk, the books that you have, I wrote those as one long novel, but it ended up not working. And that's why I cut them into two separate novels. But there, that book took uh, about nine months to write. And, but I wrote it all as, as one. So in my okay. brain, I keep thinking, oh, yeah, I really only wrote two books in a, a year and a half, which is still a lot, uh, but it just looks like three. <laughs> I think it's really inter interesting and fascinating that you took your entire Etsy shop and turned it into a coffee table book. Like you preserved it in yeah. a different way where people can still have it yeah. and access it. So yeah, really and because it's still such a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love, I loved the work that I created there. And I know I had a lot of fans and, but I just, I couldn't for many reasons, obviously many emotional reasons, I didn't want to go back and create that kind of work anymore. I felt like that was the work that though I love it kind of symbolized my time being yeah. a, a shut in, <laughs> you know, being the, yeah. the, the sad girl, the abused girl. So. But what a great way to preserve it and still have it available for people with and but able yes. to disconnect. I really love that. That must have been, I'm imagining that would be healing for you. I was just about to say it was strangely cathartic yeah. to get that book out there. And the first time I flipped through it, I was like, this is really beautiful. Like it, it's a really beautiful book. But the thing I like the most about it is closing the cover. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so I can like go there and kind of revisit like the world that I created, but then, but then it's closed. So the symbol symbolism of that, the, just like the joy of being able to literally put it on a shelf and being able to access it when I want to, instead of having it be all encompassing of my life. Was, yeah. I love that. I love it. I want to talk about the books, but also about the dance. So dance has been about 10 years now. Yes, and it yes, took yes. you eight months to be hired, but you also went into, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, burlesque. You've been the creative director and choreographer of a burlesque troupe for five years. Yes. 
So let's, I, I want to talk about meeting your husband and really getting into, cause you really went into dance. You didn't just like take. Yeah, we made it your career. We went for it. Yeah, yeah, we made it our career. And uh we also we were ballroom dancers, but we also dance um kind of contact improvisation. So it's a mixture of like contemporary and lyrical and ballroom dance. Uh we don't plan anything when we dance, everything's improved from beginning to end. So we haven't had something choreographed for us in about 10 years, nine years. Um so we would do, uh, we were very lucky. We started being able to travel kind of all over the country and perform at places. And we would get booked at these like art festivals or um, fringe festivals for theater. So we did that in New Orleans where they would book us for like an hour long period of time. So we would dance for an hour straight and just kind of get into the zone of like it, it, it's almost like you're transported to another place and yeah and people would always be like I don't even understand what kind of dance you're doing like it looks like ballroom but it's clearly not and uh, so we just sort of developed our own style of being able to move together wow and this and it you need trust because when you're not when you don't know what's coming he doesn't know what I'm gonna do I don't know what he's gonna do uh, so that was a long, a long time in the, the making to get to that point, I would say. Yeah, I would think so. To be that in tune with somebody and going from yeah. not being trusting. Yes. And not being and I think seen. What, right. I think it really helped that um, my husband's name is Roman. So uh, Roman and I were best friends first and dance partners. And neither of us were trying to fall in love with e each other. So we weren't fake at all. It wasn't like when you start dating somebody and you're like, I just want them to see the best part of me. We were just friends. So he got to know me, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I got to know him, same thing. <laughs> like mm -hmm. all each other's faults. And, uh, and we fell in love with each other anyways, <laughs> I think. <laughs> That was great. What well, at what point did you guys look at each other and go, uh, I think there might be more going on here? Oh, um, so we had been dancing together and friends for about three years, three and a half years, three years. And we had sex, you know, oops, we ended up like, oh, oh, we fucked. And uh it was pretty good. And then we were like, but we're not together. We're definitely not together. We are just friends. We are just, we called it penis friends. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I know, they're so classy. Uh, so we were, you know, penis friends for a while. And then we realized that we were kind of, we really were dating. Cause then we started doing things like, let's go out to dinner. Let's, <laughs> let's do all this stuff. Let's go on a vacation. You know. <laughs> like uh and everybody from the moment we met and all through that period of time they were always just like why aren't you guys dating again like why aren't you together and I'm like I don't want to be in a relationship blah I don't want a man blah and he's like no we're just friends we're just friends see we're just friends and uh he had a girlfriend at one point in time and even she was like I feel like you and Jennifer are gonna get married someday and he was like really no no I mean, she's the greatest person I've ever known, but no. 
So I don't know why we tried to stop ourselves for so long, but I'm glad we did because it was yeah. the right way to get to know each other. That's great. And of course, everybody else saw what you guys didn't see. You were right in the middle of it. But what a beautiful way to do it. So you're dancing, you're building trust, you're being seen, you are creating, you're kind of living the life that you wanted to from back. Yeah. In high school, you're not being bullied anymore. You're really stepping into your own at this point. Yes. In, in a relationship that was really healthy and worked out the way was the, the way best. it's supposed to. Right. <laughs> And then you started writing. So I want to kind of pick your brain. I know in creativity, you have like on stage, you can be a different person. But in my experience, that's usually kind of a facet of yourself and can be more positive because dance brings so much joy. And the yes. art you were doing the Etsy shop, again, it's, it's beautiful. It's brings, it's not dark and depressing and overwhelming and harsh. So then you start <laughs> writing, which. And I, when I started writing dark, depressing <laughs> horror um i will say this i have horror has always been my go-to genre to read it's my favorite genre to read it always has been um it's my favorite genre of things to watch as well so to me it was like a, a given that i would definitely be writing uh like ghost stories or ghost fiction so it's not, I, I tend not to write like really gory stuff at all. It is more um, evocative and visceral and moody. And um, I think I got to a point in healing from my trauma that I could kind of write about it a little bit. Uh, so in Beautiful, Frightening and Silent, there are, there's a lot of aspects of me in, in all three of my main characters of that book. And it was therapeutic and and I didn't never felt like I was wallowing in my own sadness. I felt like I was turning it into something else. So mm. I know. love that. I love that. But yeah, you can use a little little pieces of yourself sprinkled in everything and make the story something so yeah. much different than what your story was, but with pieces of you everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, people who know me know me, who have read the books are like, oh, I can see this part's you. But I always tell them, I'm like, well, I'm all of the characters because I, I created all of them. And they're, you know, they're, they're their own people. They surprise me. My characters that I write surprise me. They do things that I didn't have planned for them. They make the wrong choices. They, you know, and I, after a little while, I think I'm just along for the ride and the characters are in charge. Oh, but wow. I'm, I'm part of all of them, even the villains, you know. Like it, it's kind of, you know, fun to take the terrible parts of your personality, the ones that like, you know, are bad and, and magnify them a lot. And like, oh, voila, yeah, a villain. <laughs> Exploitation. Voila. This person, yes. it's despicable. <laughs> and and yet, like, why did you base him on? I'm like, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here I am being a pretty normal human being in society yeah. doing the right things. Right. But it is a way, I mean, reading is escape. Yes. Acting and is escape. I was, and I was always a, such a bookish kid, like, because obviously only child, didn't have a ton of friends, had parents who weren't overly interactive with me. But they always said, and again, we didn't have a lot of money, but they always said, like, if you want a book, we'll buy you a book. We'll never say no to a book. And I would just devour things, anything I could get my hands on. And I remember my mom's friends being like, there's something wrong with Jennifer. She doesn't, she's not normal. She should be outside getting a tan. 
And I was like inside during summer reading a book. I'm like, look how pale my skin is. I can't go into the sun. (laughs) But that's what everyone else was doing. So yeah, how great. Jennifer, this has been so fun. So I want to segue into people finding you. They'll have the links connecting with you, what you would have told your younger self or, you know, people who are drawn to writing or drawn to the arts and using that to bridge the gap between your trauma and healing. Can you speak a little to that to kind of give people that support? I would say, um, so this is, it, it, this might sound dorky, but I'm going to just say, uh, I'm sure I'm going to have a friend watching this. My friend, Christian, Christian, this is for you. Uh, Christian is very fascinated by the comic book character, Dr. Strange. So Dr. Strange is probably, a, a, he's a very enlightened and uh, spiritual superhero. But his journey started, he was a surgeon, and then he got in a terrible accident and his hands were ruined. So his journey, this superhero's journey started when every part of his life that he thought he knew was taken away from him in an instant and he couldn't do the one thing that he thought he was, being a surgeon. Uh, so. Christian is a great friend and he has this Facebook group that's amazing called Superheroes Unleashed. And it's a lot of us are there because it's about taking your trauma and moving on from it and creating through it and becoming the superhero you want to be. And that was the best um, kind of example I could think of, like, because everybody knows who superheroes are. And if you think about most superheroes, their stories all start with trauma. Spider-Man. Oh, my uncle Ben got killed and then I became something more. Superman, I was orphaned. And then my adopted father died in front of me. Then I became something more. Batman, my parents were murdered in front of me. So I think it's in our nature to want to want to survive. And I want to, and people, it's not easy to want to survive, but we have to. And listen to those little voices in your head that whisper that you aren't as awful as you think you are and you're not as broken as you think you are and you know take the broken pieces put it back together glue it with gold make it something new i love it i love that thank you so much for being on today i really really appreciate you sharing thank you thank you so much and yeah if people want to get in touch with me uh the easiest way is actually through my website jenniferangordon.com because all of my social media links are there on the home page i'm pretty active on instagram and facebook not so much on twitter but i am there but you can follow me nicely stalk me wherever you want thank you awesome Thank you for joining today. It's been a pleasure. You can find me at momof18.com and on social media platforms as Mom of 18. A huge thank you to NGBN TV for sponsoring this podcast episode.